in order to get up to coach a session, to coach a practice, shit, to even walk into a classroom and teach a class requires a, a high level of sympathetic nervous system arousal. So, um, you know, when we think like fight or flight, take our experience as athletes, when we walk out on the field in the quarter of the track, that high that we feel, it's the same thing that happens to us as coaches. And welcome back to another episode of the Conjugate Chest. Before going into the episode, I want to thank our sponsors, starting with the DOYSC, the Department of Young Strength Coaches. This group is designed for young strength coaches wanting to go into the field of strength and conditioning, whether that's CSCS prep, GA, or internship opportunities, or even live discussions. They are a resource for young coaches to take advantage of. I will put the link to the Discord in the description of this episode. Also, Team Builder. Team Builder is the software for performance coaches around the world. Their powerhouse platform provides coaches with the elevated experience when it comes to program development, data tracking, and staying connected with athletes and clients. TBOS is full of tools that coaches need, like multiple max training methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, goal setting, to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with team builders and house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with the promo code CONJUGATE to receive a 30-day free trial as well as a 52-week football workout program. So please be sure to like, rate, subscribe, and even share this podcast with a fellow coach or a fellow in iron. I'm your host, John Mark Raspberry, current strength coach over at Bolivar Central High School here in the great state of Tennessee. Um, I got on here two very special guests and people that have been really changing the conditioning side of strength conditioning profession. So I'll let our guest host introduce herself and then I'll let her introduce our guest for today. I am Missy Mitchell Macbeth. My current role is the Texas uh, Sales and Business Development Director with Powerlift. In addition to that, I have 18 years of coaching experience both at the high school and collegiate levels and currently um, I coach on the side with the coaches conditioning cohort, part of the coaches conditioning project with my co- head coach, Tim Kettenring, who is our guest on today. So um, Tim, if you want to give us just a little bit of a rundown on your background. Uh, thanks to both of you for having me. Uh, my name is Tim Kettenring. Uh, I've been a strength and conditioning coach for 15 years now, and I've worked at every level um, from the high school level to uh, division one level, small college level. Um, and now I work in professional sports as the high performance director with NOLA Gold Rugby. Um, I've also spent a couple of years in the private sector, running a large facility, running a small facility that's my own, which I still do on the side. And then Missy and I obviously started Coaches Conditioning Cohort, which is now the Coaches Conditioning Project uh, in June of last year to try to educate coaches around conditioning. Okay, so let's dive right into that. Um, and people will think this question is funny coming from me because I'm the co-leader of the conditioning cartel. Um, but talk to us kind of about the origins um, of the cohort, what your idea or what our idea was for it, um, because this is a subject of, of kind of debate between the two of us. And I don't really know where it came from. So talk us through that. So I think at some point last spring, we were talking about some of our consulting work um, at the high school level, kind of some of the issues we saw. And we started talking about our own training kind of tangentially with that. And, you know, we've talked about conditioning a little bit, both, you know, within the high school setting and then within our own training. And you mentioned, you know, how, you know, you kind of felt like shit all the time, but you played volleyball three to four days a week and how you still lifted two or three days a week consistently and beat yourself into the ground. Um, and so I was like, hey, maybe you should try some of my conditioning. It sounds like it's a pie, um, but it's not. So I sent you a heart rate monitor and um, within about a month of, of being on a primarily low intensity program, it seemed like your, your resting heart rate had Drop pretty significantly, your heart rate variability had kind of stabilized and it seemed like you were managing stressors a little bit better. And so, um, you know, through those conversations, we kind of mutually agreed that more coaches needed 
a better understanding of some of these fundamental principles through application to themselves in their own training. And so we put out a tweet and we're like, hey, we're taking 10 coaches. It's a 12 week program, got a little curriculum. And, um, you know, within an hour, we had 20 people respond. Um, aside from just the personal well being, like what problems does the cohort seek to address within the coaching industry? So, within strength and conditioning, there's a ton of conversation around strength, power, and speed, and even around passive recovery now. But there's really not a lot of conversation around conditioning, which, you know, it's in the name, like it's half of the equation. And it fills, for lack of a better term, so many buckets and helps the other buckets, um, helps those adaptations exponentially. And so um, that's kind of like a systemic issue. And so what the cohort does is it solves that systemic issue from the ground up, right? It's a systematic solution. We have programming that coaches will participate in themselves so they know exactly what's happening they have a heart rate monitor so they know objectively and subjectively the adaptations that are happening and and what training actually looks and feels like and then concurrently with that we have the curriculum so they can see week to week oh shit this is actually what's happening in my body right now you know with with strength power and speed it's easy to measure yeah, you put five pounds in the bar, you're stronger than you were last week. You jump half an inch higher on the jump mat than you did last week, I'm more powerful. You run a tenth of a second faster and fly 10, oh, I'm faster than I was last week. So just, we basically gave that same system uh, a, a, a way for coaches to, to learn how these adaptations take place and then see the results firsthand. So where do you feel like, you know, on a broad scale, the industry currently misses the mark with conditioning protocols? Um, I definitely think it skews more towards high intensity. And I think there are a couple of factors there. I think, and this is going to be pretty controversial, but I think the Tabata study might have been the most detrimental study like in all of strength and conditioning on the bio like on the conditioning side because it gave coaches a false sense of oh 20 seconds on 10 seconds off four minutes this is magic so now you take a coach whose schedule is already constrained which is the second factor and you say okay well if i've got a team for 60 minutes I can spend 56 minutes on speed, power, and strength and four minutes on conditioning, and I'm giving my athletes what they need, which obviously, as we know, is not responsible in the least. Um, so as far as you know, how we address those two factors, um, we kind of want to let the continuum or the pendulum swing back towards that low intensity end of the continuum because that's where um, the adaptations that are going to keep our athletes healthiest um, occur. So let's talk for a minute about practicality of application in the team setting. So you mentioned that in the cohort, we are sending a heart rate monitor to all of our coaches Realistically speaking, um, like when I was at my recent position at Byron Nelson High School, I had zero access or ability to access technology. So with everything um, in the programming being about intensity control, what are your practical applications in the team setting or even for an individual listening that maybe can't access a heart rate monitor? How would you advise them um, to kind of guide their intensity in these lower um lower intensity conditioning sessions. I almost just said cardio, I'd get fired, but conditioning. Um, so let's, let's start by kind of defining intensity control. Um, you know, with, with uh, our low intensity sessions in the cohort, 
you know, we put a big emphasis on zone two training, which is, you know, 60 to 70% of max heart rate. And, you know, when we look at our participants' heart rate data, it's generally a straight line for 30 to 60 minutes. And the way that we accomplish that is you put your phone in front of you, the app is on, and you can see your heart rate tick up. You can see the colors change, right? From um, to blue to green. I don't remember what the first one. What is the, I don't even know what the first color is. I think looks. it's gray. I think it's gray, blue, green, yellow, red. Just like uh, the rainbow, right? Right. So, um, you know, you go from you go from gray as soon as you hit that that sixty percent mark. Now you get up into into the blue, and um, and so you know we teach coaches like, hey, like you need to control your intensity by reducing your effort as you get further or get longer in duration within the session. And it's obviously really easy to see that on the app or Polar Flow or Polar Beat, which we use. Um, so kind of in our conversations around that, how we're going to help coaches transfer this understanding of intensity control into their setting, we decided that we needed some autoregulators. Um, and one of the pieces of our curriculum is talking about ventilatory threshold one and two, which has a rough correlation with respiration or your breathing rate. So like we wanted to use you know, nasal breathing, unforced nasal breathing, um, because it's basically will keep us under that 70 to 75% of max heart rate range, um, using that as our, as our autoregulator. And we thought that that was also kind of a good way for coaches to help their athletes autoregulate without using heart rate monitoring technology. Um, in the higher intensities, a lot of it has to do with like helping athletes correlate effort and pace because so much of what their conditioning is going to consist of is going to be running. And so, you know, when I prescribe, like, you know, I have uh, a couple guys here who are going to do some supplemental conditioning this week. They don't have heart rate monitors and their prescriptions are around extensive tempos. So they know about what a hundred percent effort feels like. So basically like a max effort sprint. And so what I use with them is it's kind of like a five gear model. So walk, jog, run, stride, sprint. So our, our extensive tempos need to be basically around that run pace, which is fluid, but it's not as fast as a stride or a sprint. A stride is going to feel more like sprinting, so kind of like in that 80 to 90% effort range, whereas that run is going to be right around 70%, something that they can maintain for you know 30 seconds to a minute and then turn around and repeat with incomplete recovery. So really like educating coaches on, on those two um, elements, both like nasal breathing um, on, in, in that lower intensity range, and then what pacing and effort look like and feel like more specifically, how to tie in RPE with that so that they can then go and apply um, those protocols within their setting, even without the technology that we have. So also on the practical application front, zone two is super low intensity. Um, we, however, high school level, even the collegiate setting, like I design facilities all the time and you don't have 30 echo bikes sitting in a facility, right? So your conditioning, which probably needs to be largely off feet, you don't necessarily have that option. So talk to us from a, again, a practical ap application standpoint, how you would implement low intensity training in a large team setting. So I'll actually use my setting as an example, you know, even in at the professional level, like we have, we have two bikes and a rower and I have 39 guys who I have to take through active recovery work today, which is going to be, it's going to fall in that zone too, that low intensity um, heart rate band. So what we're going to use is the same thing that we teach in the cohort. And that's the cardiac output method, um, which, you know, Joel Jameson came up with that, that concept, which is just kind of an extrapolation of like, 
what happens physiologically, you know, at the heart level from low intensity training is enhancing cardiac outputs. The more heart, the more blood your heart can pump per per beat into the system um, is exactly what what cardiac output is. So like stroke volume times times heart rate. Stroke volume gets bigger, heart rate goes lower, more blood gets in the system. So with our kind of variation of the cardiac output method is we design primarily like equipment-free circuits around kind of like fundamental movement skills. So skipping, shuffling, crawling, um, running, but not fast, um, backwards running, um, combining different patterns, extensive plyos, pogos, extensive med ball throws, uh, and, and exercises and movements that are going to raise their heart rate into that kind of, you know, 60 to 70, maybe a little bit higher percent of max heart rate range, but it's going to allow that left ventricle to fill completely, which then is going to increase cardiac output over time. But the way that we structure the work rest protocols gives athletes enough time, like just enough time to recover in order to start the next effort, whatever that next movement, whatever it is, but it doesn't require, it doesn't necessarily require a ton of space. It doesn't require any equipment if you don't have it. And if you've got a team of, you know, like, uh, like our, our mutual friend, Brandon Herring has, has a hundred, hundred football guys, well, he can take them out on the field and set up five stations, have 20 kids at each station, run them through a cardiac output circuit in 20 minutes, and they're going to get better low intensity conditioning than they're going to get anywhere else with even if they have bikes even if they have rowers even if they go and run tempos like it's just going to be a better overall uh for developing that base and then obviously huge for heart health um and it checks a bunch of boxes right helps kids move better it you know you use crawling now we're talking shoulder stability we're talking we're talking core stability we're talking hip mobility like a lot of things that we already do in our programming and sometimes maybe even we waste time doing it when we can bucket it with other things like, you know, cardiac output. So now we're getting our, our, our low intensity conditioning, we're getting mobility, we're getting stability, we're getting, um, you know, contralateral control, cross coordination, like a whole bunch of stuff um, that, you know, we, necess- we, we talk about like time constraints. Like it's just, I think it's the perfect way to solve a lot of those problems and, and check a ton of boxes. So I think something that you touched on that I'm really big on that you kind of just blew right past that listeners I feel like need to hear is you mentioned the complete filling of the left ventricle. So when we get into these conversations about low intensity um, conditioning sessions, there's often the question of why, like, why not just work harder? Because we've been sold that if we sprint, we develop, you know, the same aerobic adaptations that we do at lower intensity. Um, And there is a little bit of truth, like you do get a higher cardiac output, but the, the adaptations to the heart are not the same. So when the heart's beating faster than about 75%, we're just going to draw that as a line in the sand. That's not entirely accurate from a physiological standpoint, but for purposes of the discussion, we'll call it 75%. Above that, your heart is beating too fast to fill completely. So since the heart is not filling completely, you're not getting a stretch on your left ventricle. What that stretch is going to create is it's going to create overload. That overload is going to have cause eccentric left ventricular hypertrophy. So the sarcomeres are going to lay down in series to the ones that already exist versus when you're operating at higher heart rates, you get more of a pressure overload on the heart. The sarcomeres are going to lay down in parallel to the existing ones, and you get a thickening of the walls of the left ventricle, not necessarily an expansion of the size. So not only is there a different physiological output to or, or physiological adaptation to the heart, it's also occurring at higher intensities at a much higher mechanical and metabolic cost. So even if the, uh, I say this all the time, even if the adaptations were exactly the same, like they're occurring at a higher cost at high intensity. So why would you not go with minimum effective dose? 
which brings me to my next question, which is again, back to the practical application standpoint, high school level, we ball on a time budget. We've got five, 60, maybe if you're lucky, you have five, 60 minute sessions a week in your off season. We know that it takes quite a bit of time to go through a speed session if you're operating with full recovery. We need to lift a couple days a week. We still have to incorporate skills. So what would your minimum effective dose for the implementation of low intensity conditioning be? I think really like 20 to 40 minutes a week would be sufficient. Um, ideally like in contiguous 20 minute blocks because that kind of will get close enough to that steady state uh, low intensity range uh, in terms of adaptations, um, but still like not take away from, you know, the 300 minutes a week that, you know, you have your kids in the weight room if you're at the high school level with that kind of five, 60 minute period. Um, the other thing there though is like, maybe there needs to be some education on how to rethink or restructure microcycles. Like it doesn't have to be five, 60 minute sessions a week. Like maybe it's 10 60 minute sessions over two weeks. And instead of having, you know, your program, you know, replicate itself week after week, five days, five days, because that's, I don't know what to do with my hands. Um, maybe, maybe it's okay. Well, you know, day one is, is Monday week one. And then day, day one isn't repeated again until Wednesday of week two. So now I have seven days, like seven actual uh, uh, work days, training days to work with instead of limiting myself to five. Now I can take that, that 20 to 40 to 60 minute recommendation for low intensity work and I can just spread it out just like you could do with all the other qualities. Um, and I mean, I understand like calendar constraints. I work on a weekly, but I mean, on a weekly um, training cycle, but at the same time, like I know if, if I need to make more time to fit other training qualities into my programming for my guys, then like, I'm going to extend that, that micro cycle out a little bit and I'm going to go to seven days. I'm going to go to like seven uh, training days, not calendar days. So like 10, 10 calendar days or 14 calendar days so that I make sure that they get everything that they need working within the time constraints that I, that I have instead of trying to force things in um where there may not be time it's interesting also that you mentioned like full recovery in a speed session which like low intensity work facilitates better recovery from speed power and strength work so now you're using your time more efficiently even on that end because your kids are fitter is there anything else you want to add on the cohort or let's flip a question to John Mark. Um, John Mark is actually a cohort 4.0 participant. That's what we're in right now is 4.0. Correct. Um, what have been your takeaways so far from cohort participation? So starting with, I guess the discord, um, it's not just a cohort, it's a community. So we interact with one another a lot on there. Um, whether that's just posting our um, zone two training or the cardiac output. I mean, we're just posting things out there. Sometimes, you know, you're connecting with, you know, resources that uh, other coaches have. I know Tim and I think there was another coach from Texas that shared their uh, conditioning plans um, on there. And so that's, I mean, that's a valuable resource for a lot of coaches that may not, not necessarily understand that, but, just get it from another perspective. Give someone that you know is, knows what they're doing. Um, on the other front of it, from a personal standpoint, um, I, I went from totally not doing any like kind of um, aerobic training or low intensity training to going, I guess, the 180. Right. So I used to just go lift, and then uh, my walk back to my truck was the uh, cardiac output that I. <laughs> I, I had so I mean going from you know going from that to you know going zone two training you know that that uh that first 30 minute session was was pretty eye-opening um to say say the uh, say less because um you know I'm I was playing football all my life wrestled whatever and 
I mean, it was high intensity year round. Like we had, we got to beat it to the ground. And now that first session, that th- first 30 minute session, I remember because my heart rate had stayed in, I think it was 135. And I mean, I, I felt like I was like, I had to go run or jog or something. I mean, it I had, it was different. It was a lot different than what I was used to. You know, I had to pull back a little bit, pull back a lot, any, a lot anyways. And I uh, had to take Tim's advice of, uh, was it JFW? Just fucking walk. I had to take that advice, man. I mean, like, it was eye-opening for sure. Um, I think that I walked to the truck is maybe my favorite. Um, that was my favorite mode of, of warming up when I was younger is I just walked to the platform. Um, but turns out now it takes 30 minute zone two session plus mobility plus all kinds of other things. And then my lift looks more like a warm up. So um, actually, let's kind of talk a little bit about that, Tim. Um, you tweeted something to the effect of coaching being a risk. The coaching lifestyle is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So talk us through kind of what you mean by that, some of the variables that are at play and how you feel like the cohort can help solve that problem. Oof. Um, so, uh, let's take, use the example of Mike Leach since it's recent. Uh, Mike Leach recruited me out of high school as a 42 year old head coach at Texas Tech. And you could not have met a more energetic, but also like authentic human being in a role with the kind of responsibilities that he had. And, that really hit home with me when he died in December. Um, not only because I knew him personally, but also because like of the kind of human being he was and the energy with which he lived his life. And as coaches, our athletes thrive off of our energy. But what we don't realize as coaches is that in order to get up to coach a session, to coach a practice, shit, to even walk into a classroom and teach a class requires a a high level of sympathetic nervous system arousal. So, um, you know, when we think like fight or flight, take our experience as athletes, when we walk out onto the field or the court or the track, that high that we feel, that we also feel like we need to be prepared to perform, which we do to an extent, it's the same thing that happens to us as coaches walking in all those different environments. We do that every day, sometimes five, six, seven times a day. You know, John Mark talked about having, having to teach six classes and then go into the weight room. That's a huge load just by itself. And that's not, that's, it's physiological, obviously, but it's not physical per se, you know, like training. So when we think of that, just kind of like as our, as our standard operating system. And then we add most of the time, like suboptimal nutrition, because we either don't have the resources, the money or the time to structure a nutrition program for ourselves. And sleep is just absolute garbage. I mean, I, last week I averaged five hours and 10 minutes of sleep a night. Not great. Um, that's gonna again lend itself to even more like sympathetic nervous system arousal. So now you've got like three or four layers of physiological stressors, not including just exercising that we claim to do to take care of ourselves, but in all reality, it might actually be hurting us. So, um, circling back to like what we do in the cohort to try to balance that out is low intensity work. You know, most of our, most of our training, just like John Mark said, like we're, we're lifting, we're, we're sprinting, we're throwing, we might do a, a, you know, a hit session at some point, all those things are cumulative stressors. In addition to all of the other autonomic stressors that I just talked about, low intensity work is the exact opposite it balances out at least in in some 
ratio all of those those sympathetic nervous system stressors because it's a parasympathetic nervous system stressor because it does allow the heart that left ventricle to fill completely it reduces the intensity of that that autonomic signaling you know on the heart which is again a stressor in and of itself uh, as well and um, gets us at least a little bit more towards that parasympathetic end so that we can also so now we can manage all of those other stressors more effectively but then also like put more effort into those so i can be better in the session that i'm going to walk into in a few minutes i can be i can have more energy at home so that i can you know actually carry a conversation with my wife and my kid at, at dinner you know and then i can um i can manage my own like strength speed and power training better because i'm i'm managing those stressors with my low intensity work and it's like you know we talk about how aerobic training facilitates recovery from outputs for our athletes we have a shit ton of outputs you know we list, just listed all of them aerobic training low intensity work is going to facilitate better recovery both like physiologically and autonomically so that we can do better in all those things and we can shit we can it's even going to affect our sleep so then it's 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 it creates a non-vicious circle of of better recovery and better outputs and i think even on the lowest level like for me one of the changes that i noticed within once you get past the initial like oh this is boring like i want to go harder i can't like hit my intensity or whatever once you get past that, it's like 30 minutes a day that people leave you alone. Um, and so for me, like, and I think more, more coaches struggle with this than care to admit, um, because we don't want to be soft, but, um, I have anxiety issues at time at times, just simply because I put a lot of pressure on myself and I love to borrow trouble and think about all the things that could go wrong and could happen and whatnot. And so for me, setting aside 30 minutes to just like make my mind, I, I just say I make my mind go completely black, like devoid of all thought. And I just watch that number on the screen as I ride my echo bike and think of nothing else. And so even just, even if there was no physiological benefit that lasted beyond that 30 minute session, just that 30 minutes of almost like non-meditative meditation um, is beneficial during the day because that's 30 minutes that your mind is not just an absolute storm of like what you have to do. Um, so I think that that's something that people have really figured out through our cohort. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, what John Mark said is that just the community aspect, um, I'm tremendously introverted. And so it is, it's allowed me to connect through you know, training with other coaches, which is ultimately like for a lot of coaches, that's, you know, how we connect with people is through training. Um, but I think it's brought a deeper conversation um, among our coaches in the industry. I think it's brought, like we had a very, in our cohorts legends program, we had a very like deep conversation about, uh, not athlete death, uh, about parent deaths, where it's like, we've become so close with each other through stupid zone two training. Um, so it's become more than that. Um, and since I just kind of slipped into the next topic, I uh, didn't mean to, but one of the things that's, we're going to make a pivot off of the cohort, although there's definitely some um, tie-ins that can be made here. One of the things that's going on right now in the industry is we're seeing as a result of a couple of rhabdo cases in Texas, kind of a push for um, the a refocus on athlete safety. Um, and with that, the topic of what makes a qualified coach always comes to the forefront. Um, and Tim, you tweeted today <laughs> or yesterday, perhaps, um, something along the lines of bragging about being a strength coach that doesn't have a CSCS is like bragging about being a doctor that doesn't have a license or police officer that doesn't have a badge or something like that. Um, so if you will just kind of unpack your thoughts on where the CSCS fits in our um, kind of entry barrier to entry as an industry, and then also what you feel um, 
makes a qualified coach? Yeah, so um, I have a handful of Gen Pop clients, one of whom is a surgeon. And we were talking about qualifications one day because he was asking me about mine. And which is not normally a, a series of questions that I field from anybody because nobody knows that these qualifications even exist. With another discipline, though, they all exist. Uh, and he said, you know, he's like the joke that we had in med school was, you know, what do you call, what do you call the person who graduates last in their med school class? Doctor. It's like, oh, that's funny. And it's like, well, what do you, what do you call an unqualified strength coach? Strength coach. That's a problem. You know, it's like we have, we have this, this barrier to entry, supposedly, that quality notwithstanding should be uh, preventative in keeping people out of the profession who are going to risk kids' lives when the profession exists to keep kids safe, right? And that's kind of like, you know, when you think about the Hippocratic Oath, the first thing is do no harm. And I know like Gary Schofield has hammered this for years. Like this should be the number one priority of a strength coach. It should be the number two priority of a strength coach. It should be the number three priority of a strength coach. Performance enhancement should be way down the fucking list. And yet coaches complain about the CSCS or the CSCCA and say, oh, well, it's a shitty test. The textbook isn't good. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't teach you how to coach. Well, no shit. Like coaching teaches you how to coach, but so does mentorship. Like those th- all three of those things work cohesively to develop a competent practitioner, just like in medicine, just like in, so my wife is a psychologist. When she was in grad school, she had to do a 1200 hour supervision where not only did she have to go through therapy herself, but she also had to practice with actual patients under the direct supervision, like literally in the same room of a practicing psychologist who was her, her, um, her supervisor. And that's exactly what should, which is, it's also what exists in medicine. It's what exists in law enforcement. It's what exists sure as hell exists in the military. You know, when I was going through basic training, like I had, everybody talks, there's all these stereotypes about drill sergeants. Some of, very few of them are actually true. They are there to make sure that when you go into combat and you have an M4 in your hand, you are not going to take someone's life unless you absolutely mean it. And you are there to protect the guy to your right and the guy to your left, 100%. That is our job as strength coaches. And if coaches cannot meet these minimum qualifications, they don't deserve to practice. Now there are, I'm sure there are hundreds of coaches, great people all who either haven't bothered to meet the standard or can't meet the standard for whatever reason. But, and, and, and like, I think something that you tweeted a couple, couple weeks ago, John Mark was huge. You're like, Hey, this is the CSCS is really hard. Like I've taken it a number of times and I'm going to keep taking it and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure that I meet this standard. A lot of people, I would say 90% of coaches who don't meet it the first time, don't try again. So like, A, it speaks to your character, which is huge, but also like that example is exactly what I think a lot of young coaches need because like, we can't continue to allow Rockwall Heath happen. Like we can't, we can't allow those situations to happen. We can't allow coaches to get into positions where kids' lives are literally at risk. You know, I was, I was listening to a podcast uh, a couple of days ago while doing my zone two work. And this was the sports scientist from South Africa talking to a sports and exercise um cardiologist and he was talking about athlete death and and specifically like athlete's heart which as missy alluded to earlier is concentric left ventricular hypertrophy so that's where the thickening of the the ventricular walls creates 
too much constriction within the heart to where it raises resting heart rate, raises blood pressure, raises pressure on the arterial walls, like which, you know, when you think about like how arthrosclerosis develops, yeah, and leads to heart attacks in, in most of our like grandparents and parents, um, we're basically creating that by relying only on high intensity work, by only sprinting, by only lifting, by only, again, using high intensity methods in our athletes, the education piece is not there. Well, guess what you learn when you, when you, we prep for the CSES, you learn cardiac physiology, you learn about cardiac output, whether you remember it or not, or bother to apply it obviously is on you, but like, that's what we do for the cohort. So there's this systemic issue, right? Coaches don't understand conditioning. There's a ton of misapplication. Well, now we have a systematic solution. We have a curriculum. We have an application piece. We have an experiential learning piece. So that when coaches see 90% of max heart rate in an intensive tempo and they get there, it hits them smack in the face how fucking hard it is. And it's like, okay, I'm going to do this to an athlete. I'm going to think twice about it. Let's talk about that because that's another like hot topic. And I definitely have my stance on your thoughts on should coaches, I don't even want to say train like their athletes because we can't train like our athletes because we can't go get in a full contact practice because we're coaching it, but remove like all of that context your training program within the best of your abilities are you sampling that before you implement it with the team i would die because i'm <laughs> old so i i am generally going to at least sample some of it and if I haven't, it's going to be using components that I have done. I have participated in, in my own training in the past so that I understand exactly what it feels like. And I understand more importantly, what it takes to recover from those efforts. Um, sprinting is a great example. A lot of coaches have never actually sprinted. I was a sprinter in high school. I didn't actually sprint. I did not hit like an actual max velocity sprint until after I was out of college. And when I, when I felt, and it wasn't even that, it was, it was like 60 meters. It took me a solid 10 minutes to feel normal again. So, you know, when coaches talk about, uh, you know, like you said, we need to do the training that our athletes do. I think you need to experience some of it. Absolutely. Because, you know, especially from a conditioning standpoint, if you don't know what 90% of max heart rate is and you go prescribe a 300 yard shuttle for your women's basketball team, like what are they thinking at the 68, 69, 70, 71, 72 seconds when that heart rate is ticking up so fast that now they're hyperventilating, they finish, they're doubled over in pain, they're about to throw up because it's their third one and their head coach only wants a minute recovery between each one. That's something that, yeah, I mean, I think a coach needs to experience that so that they don't turn around and try to apply it. Um, no, I agree with that. Um, that's part of why, I mean, aside from the fact that I love it, um, that's part of why I've continued to play a sport, um, as a strength coach for as long as I have. And, um, you know, Monty Sparkman and I've talked about this, like he still trains and competes as a power lifter. And part of the reason that he does it, I mean, obviously he loves it, but he's like, you know, it gives me a feeling of what it's like to prepare, um, so I think that, you know, you touched on some good points where it's like, for example, if we want to throw in a session of 300 pushups, like mm, maybe we should try that thing, having never done it before, because instead of having an arbitrary, like, oh, I think someone should be able to do this. 
let's see if you can actually do it. The caveat to that is, you know, as a strength coach, like I'm really, really good at a couple things because those are things that I need to demonstrate to my athletes. And so I put a really heavy training emphasis in my own program on that. And so I'm more physically prepared, let's say pull-ups a year ago, like my pull-ups were doing pretty well, right? I can just like do like a five point ISO hold in front of athletes, like talking normally and not get out of breath. And they're just like, Oh my God. Well, that's because I trained for that moment. Right. If I then expect a kid who's never done a pull-up before to do it exactly like I just did it and then call them soft when they don't like, that's not reasonable. So I think the the take-home message here is like, yeah, sample that stuff out, but also we have to remember the training age of the athlete that we're working with. The training status, did we just come off of a break? Um, and with that, like smart coaches are starting a little, little soapbox here. Smart coaches are starting to figure out that even a break as short as the weekend, kids go home, they sleep the entire time, they miss four meals, they don't hydrate, collegiate level, professional level. They're also hydrating uh, irresponsibly, not responsibly on the weekends. Um, and so they come back in Monday morning and we want to have a really good high, low model where it's, you know, high intensity Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but their bodies simply aren't prepared. So not only do we have a crappy session on Monday, we also wreck them for Tuesday through Friday. So what smart coaches within reason, we're on calendars, we have schedules, there might be a game on Tuesday, we may have to do something specific on Monday, but within reason, you know, these coaches are bringing them back in and letting them have more of a recovery based session on a Monday and having their high, you know, their high speed day on Tuesday, because they're letting their athletes get their feet back under them after literally two days off. So then when you extrapolate that out to two weeks of a Christmas break, which realistically is a month because you had finals week the day before or the week before the two week break. And then it was actually Thanksgiving week before that, or you were picking up equipment after football season or whatever it was, your kids haven't trained for a month. And so you have to accommodate for your training status and progress back in from that. That's not the time to do your stupid military style boot camp, which you touched on that. And I want you to kind of, I asked you this in a, um, in a free lap interview, but as a person who has served in the military, can you please talk to us about why you do not think war analogies are appropriate for adolescent boys participating in sport? Ooh, um, talk about soapboxes. Try not to get emotional here. So one of the factors that led to me enlisting the army at 34 years old was my service to or through an organization called Team Red, White, and Blue, which is a veterans service organization or VSO that connects veterans with civilians using exercise as a means to, to bridge that gap because there's, especially post 9-11, there was a big, what we call like military civilians divide. And what that leads to is like an exacerbation of, of PTSD in veterans because they don't feel included in normal society. So, uh, Serving the military was something I, I had wanted to do since I was very young, um, like six, seven years old. And um, so I decided to enlist well into my adulthood and into my coaching career as well. It's kind of like with that as a foundation, um, a lot of the stories that I heard from the veterans that I worked with once they realized like the setting that I was in on a daily basis, which at the, at the time was, um, was the college level and a non-football school, even though I had coached football and been a football strength coach prior, was their disgust with coaches using war analogies after they had sacrificed their lives to literally protect their freedom. Um, 
football is by far the worst offender. And having having played football, having heard those kinds of analogies, having used them myself as a coach, and then hearing these men and women who served and sacrificed so much, served next to people who sacrificed their lives, talk about a profession that I loved in that way was eye-opening is, is a grave understatement. It changed my entire approach to coaching. And football coaches especially fancy themselves as, um, for lack of a better term, like non-commissioned officers. So the, the, the people who I primarily served with were all NCOs. So these are men and women who enlist. Um, they're not commissioned officers. They didn't go to a military academy. And their day-to-day -day is to make sure that we are as well-prepared as soldiers to protect ourselves, the men and women to our right and our left, as well as we possibly can. That's like actual sacrifice. Like putting a helmet and pads on and going out and sweating through a two and a half hour practice is not a sacrifice, it's a game. And for a grown man to say that that's a sacrifice and that kids need to sacrifice is bullshit. And not even getting into like militaristic training, but saying that kids are going, like kids, kids, 15 and 16 year old kids are going to battle. They're not going to battle, they're playing a fucking game. Like had I stayed in, I would have gone to battle. Like I would have served in combat. I was in a combat specialty. Like I was ready to sacrifice my life so that dumbass football coach could continue to do whatever it is he wanted to do with all the freedoms that he got because I was willing to sacrifice my life to protect and that my friends were willing to sacrifice their lives to protect. It's offensive again is, is an understatement. And I'm sure there are, there are veterans and, and active duty service members who will disagree with me, but the, the majority that's the sentiment. I appreciate you sharing that because I know that's a really emotional and heated topic for you. Um, from my perspective, having not served, I find it even more ludicrous that coaches take that mindset because I was not willing to make that sacrifice myself. So how dare I try to make the parallel um, that I in any way understand that. And I also find it very ironic because I think what makes an actual boot camp difficult is that it's like constant, it's nonstop. And we think that we're going to replicate that in a 45 minute class period in a two week training cycle that then when we've screamed at them for not being behind the line or we've started them over for, you know, not doing whatever it was properly week three arrives and we're done with boot camp and we never revisit those concepts. And suddenly that's supposed to make us win a game in December. Like I don't like just from a logistical standpoint, it is my also, it's like those, those don't mean anything. Who gives a shit if the kid has his foot in front of the line? That means nothing, literally nothing. If I don't clean my M4, guess what that means? I'm risking my brothers and sisters lives. Like that's, those are consequences. Like a game, a game has no consequences. It's a game. Like if I, if I play Scrabble with my wife and I lose, there are zero consequences to that. Right. If I go play horse with one of my guys in a minute and he beats me, there's no consequences to that. But in combat, every action has consequences. There are zero parallels to war and sports period. 
to lighten the mood a little bit. I don't think you've played Scrabble in my home, but um, because there's definitely some consequences after a loss, which never happens to me because I don't lose at Scrabble. But anywho, um, okay, so uh, let's actually lighten the mood and turn to one more topic. So the whole war analogy thing, really what that is, is an attempt at a motivation tactic. So talk to me about alternative ways that you feel are much more effective motivational strategies for athletes, particularly team sport athletes. Um, well, I mean, what you presented on at track football consortium, you know, self-determination theory, autonomy, relatedness, competence. In my, when I took this job um, with Enola Gold in December, I went through and I interviewed, not interviewed, I met with each of our guys for five or 10 minutes just to get a sense of who they are, what their needs are, et cetera. Um, and then kind of figure out like what some of their motivators, what their drivers are for at least like around training and, and you know, playing professional rugby. As part of that, kind of like uh, as part of those conversations, what I was looking for was to give them a level of control over their training. It's also something that I try to do more broadly, like within the team and the position groups, uh, which is exactly like what autonomy is. Like as coaches, we pretty much like operate autonomously. Like that we obviously have supervisors, but for the most part, like we do what we're supposed to do as professionals with very little um, in terms of guidance or, or, or uh, you know, barriers on either side. Um, with with young athletes like giving them some freedom uh, to control their training process has been shown to lead to much better outcomes and you know it doesn't have to be like oh hey 15 year old you know soccer girl like write your own program that's obviously a terrible idea but maybe it's like hey like 15 year old soccer girl, do you prefer to do pull-ups or chin-ups? Oh, I prefer chin-ups. Okay, cool. You're going to do a set of three chin-ups instead of a set of two pull-ups. And that's, it's as simple as that. You're not telling her to do anything. You're giving her an option. She chooses, takes direction over her process. She's going to do those three chin-ups as well as she possibly can, and probably better than the two pull-ups that would be the alternative. Um, and that's, just one example of autonomy like there are a ton of different ways that you can give athletes autonomy and teams autonomy over their process that's just one example um relatedness is basically like how to create cohesiveness or community within a group or the team you know we did this in the cohort and we've done it with every cohort and that's we've started a group message we encourage people to share we encourage people to to support others which happens organically and within a team you know it's as simple as like one of the things that I used when I was at the college level is I would have theme days so we would spend you know five or ten, five or ten minutes on a you know doing our like a ground-based warm-up we have a small space and so um and and with my theme days it's basically like we would have my favorite Monday so you know I'd have I'd let one one of my athletes pick a category it's like things as simple as like ice cream to, you know, favorite foreign city they visited. And we just go around the room and each athlete would share their favorite, whatever in that category. Tuesdays would be uh, my favorite Monday on Tuesday because teams that trained on Tuesday didn't train on Monday and they felt left out. So uh, Wednesday, and again, keep in mind, this is at the college level, was wine Wednesday. W H I N E, because the one of the uh, the bars around the corner from the school I worked at had Wine Wednesday W I N E obviously where you could get a bottle of wine for five dollars which was super popular. So um, what I did with Wine Wednesday is I would let each athlete complain about one thing, which they thought was hysterical because like one of the kind of like stereotypical coach things it's like oh no no complaining well no like give your give your athletes a space to complain and they're gonna feel much more connected to you and to each other 
So um, Wine Wednesday was a big hit. And Thursdays, and this was actually the first one that I, that I started using probably 10 years ago, was, was Tell Me a Thing Thursday. And it was basically just go around the room and you tell me a thing about you. It can be historical. It can be what you ate for lunch. It can be, you know, I struggle with anxiety and depression. It can be anything and everything. And that was actually the one that was probably the most powerful over time because it started really superficial and got really deep by the end of the semester, which, you know, with, with my volleyball group specifically, it was probably their favorite thing to do. Um, because, you know, fall, volleyball being a fall sport, it's hard to integrate freshmen into a college setting where they're not there for the summer. And so one of the first things I would always try to schedule our first training session on a Thursday so that I could lead with Tell Me a Thing Thursday. So these freshman girls come in and they have a chance to like see how vulnerable some of our upperclassmen would be almost straight away and feel really, really safe in that environment, um, which, you know, obviously like has layers of benefits later on and even immediately. So that's tell me a thing Thursday. And then uh, the big one though, and this was, I saved this for special occasions was family time Friday, which kind of built on tell me a thing Thursday, but was more, well, the other four days are kind of like athlete centered. Family time Friday was a little bit more coach centered. So, you know, if, if I knew we had a 60 minute session and, you know, my, my athletes had been doing really, really well for three or four weeks, I would just block out 10 or 15 minutes on a Friday session and say, okay, we're going to have family time Friday. And I would, you know, we would sit down in the weight room, you know, turn off the music, block out as many distractions as we can. And I would let them, I would field questions from them on, you know, a lot of different topics, things that they normally would not have felt comfortable talking to a cult, a coach about, or even another adult. And obviously like I set very strict boundaries with that, but you know, a lot of relatedness is self-disclosure at least like from a coach standpoint. So, which again, like tell me, I think Thursday, family time, Friday worked really well to facilitate that because like, you know, even like superficial connections lead to better relation relatedness, but those deep connections and the, the sharing of personal experiences, you know, if like for, for me, you know, having struggled with anxiety and depression since I was in middle school, both like on a personal level, but then also as an athlete, sharing those experiences led to eventually like my athletes opening up about a lot of those things in their own lives. And you know, working with, you know, some of our head coaches, I was able to kind of steer them in the direction of therapy and use utilizing counseling services that we had on campus through Family Time Friday, um, which, you know, like, okay, theme days, like they sound kind of silly and they obviously like progress from kind of silly to really, really important. Um, but in general, like they all facilitate that relatedness component. Um, and I guess the last part of self-determination theory being competence you know like there's obviously you know missy's big on behavioral quadrants so positive reinforcement negative reinforcement negative punishment positive punishment um when we want our athletes to feel good at what they do even if they may not actually be that good at it but we want them we want to kind of dangle that carrot in front of them we're going to give them positive reinforcement that's all facilitating that competence is telling them that they're good at something so that they continue to progress towards actual competence. You know, and that goes for things in the weight room that goes for technical skills in their sport. It goes to technical, tactical skills, working within their sport. Uh, it goes to building relationships. Like there's a whole, again, all of these things have exponential benefits in all areas of their lives, but they also lead to just tremendous outcomes within their athletic development. That was a lot. Um, no, 
I, I mean, I really like, obviously you and I've discussed theme days. Um, something that like, I think is a really good take home point is that they progressed from kind of superficial to like very serious. And, and I think that that's really important because kids aren't ready to open up. People aren't ready to open up. Like something that I did, um, at my most recent position is, um, we would do pick them on Saturdays. And so I would pick a game of the week normally with, you know, two college teams, state of Texas. And I would have the kids like, okay, if you're a Texas fan, you're going to stand over here. And if you're a Texas tech fan, you're going to stand over here. And like the kids would, all right. And like, they started doing research for pick them day because they didn't want to be wrong. And on Monday we would come in and I would pick them too. And so on Monday we would come in and the team that, um, picked wrong all the kids that picked wrong would have five up downs so everyone listening is like oh my god positive punishment exercise punishment you're horrible and it's like no the kids loved it because when I picked wrong I'm in the floor doing up downs with them so it's like exactly. they're like oh my gosh this is so cool and it's really superficial because we're just picking college football games and being silly and doing up downs and like we kept like I kept a chart in the end of the year the like number one person that um that had the most, I had a kid go like 13 and 0 and pick him. It was crazy. He purchased from me a t-shirt of the college um, of his choice. So I acquired a Texas A&M t-shirt and he exchanged a quarter for the shirt, right? Um, so little stuff I think makes a big difference. Um, and those are things that you know, a lot of times we try to, as coaches, put tons of structure to that with like leadership lessons. But I think when you do things more organically, like what you're talking about, it's much more effective. And you reference behavioral quadrants. And now I'm waving this book around. If um, like I'm big, the dog that was grumbling at the floor for me being too loud, um, I have four rescues. And so I um, have to deal with lots of anxiety and behavioral issues. Um, and so I have had to learn about behavioral modification tactics. And that taught me a ton about training athletes. So the book that I have is called don't shoot the dog by Karen Pryor. And it's kind of like the base level book on behavioral modification. So if that's something that you're interested, like I know the title is about dogs, but it's actually really about training any species, including humans. Um, I think that's kind of, we've covered like a lot um, and I, I, from the time I started counting 11 cuss words, I don't know where we stand on this podcast on whether or not those are legal or bleeped, um, but you'll have 11 to cut out John Mark. Um, John Mark, do you have any questions for Tim? I don't, I just really appreciate both of you making the time to come on here. And, you know, when we started talking about, you know, having an episode with Tim and Bissy being the guest host and. Stuff like that. I was like, okay, well, conditioning, we'll talk about the scientific stuff of it, the cohort, but that re went really, really deep into, you know, that military topic. And I mean, I really do appreciate you, Tim, and I appreciate the, your service to this great country of ours too. Appreciate you being a type of American who's worth serving for. Well, I guess we'll wrap up the episode on that note. So again, thank you all again. And that's another episode of the Conjugate Chats. Please follow our social media platforms at Conjugachet Podcast on Twitter and TikTok. Also, please follow our guests and our guest hosts on their social medias as well. So in the name of strength, stay strong and have a day today.